G'day. Please feel free to pop a seat, pop a squat, do whatever you'd like to do. Uh, it's completely your choice tonight. Welcome along. My name's Riley. I'm actually part of the leadership team here at Beyond. And if you've just joined us this week, or if this is your first time stepping into church, we want to say a big welcome, a big g'day. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight. If you weren't here last week, uh, in fact, we've actually just jumped into this new series, this new series called Unexpected Answers. And we're currently at part two of this five-part series. We've been looking at this idea uh, that very often we have questions in which we have an expected answer from. In fact, in different situations, in different circumstances, we actually set ourselves up so we can find this expected answer uh, that comes with it. Uh, I don't know about you or what you got up to last week, but uh, during my time this week, I had a pretty uh, poor day at work. So I did what most 19-year-old males do when they get home from work and have had a pretty miserable day, sat myself down and thought I'd watch a teen romance drama. Uh, The movie I watched is actually called Paper Towns. Now, I don't know if you've seen Paper Towns before. Uh, It's actually based off a novel by this guy called John Green. And the novels in itself, if you might have heard of them before, there's Fault in Our Stars, really nice movies that have these great conclusions at the end, these great resolutions. And I was watching Paper Town this week, and I was sitting at home by myself. And as I was watching it, I kind of just got dragged into the plot line of the film. I got dragged into it because the main character, whose name was Quentin, also known as Q, uh, a part of me just resonated with him. See, he was actually chasing this girl that was next door. Now, I don't have a girl next door that I'm chasing, and if you do know the girl I live next door to, please don't tell her that I'm chasing her. But with Quentin, he was chasing this girl next door. In fact, he had loved this girl for nine years. But she hasn't talked to him in nine years until one night she climbs up into his bedroom window, pops in, and they just go and wreak havoc and pull pranks on people. It's this fantastic montage and it's great. But then she leaves the town. She leaves the town and Quentin thinks, this is terrible. I've lost my chance. I've lost my opportunity. So he does, and I have great respect for what he does in the film. He rallies his merry men of friends together. They get the boy band together and they road trip it all the way to try and find where this girl is going. Because this girl called Margot, and she's played by uh, the actor Carla Delevingne, I believe. And if you know Carla Delevingne, she has this distinctive facial feature. She's got these fairy caterpillar eyebrows. So I'm just going to call her eyebrow girl for a little bit. Uh, She has these distinct eyebrows, and he was chasing this eyebrow girl. So he jumped in the van, and he was heading away, and he was going on a road trip with his mates. And as they're road tripping, they're finding these clues that she's left, and his heart is just aching to find her and I'm along the way just sitting at home just on the edge of my seat the whole time because I'm like mate I want you to get there I want you to get there so badly but the thing is is that their prom night is coming up and my mate Quentin has to make the tough decision to tell his friends that guys I need to finish this quest by myself you guys head back to prom you you go with the dates that you have arranged I got to finish this quest by myself so as his mates take the van back to prom he continues on in this town and it drains out and, and kind of stretches out a little bit longer. And I'm still on the edge of my seat because I just expect Q to find this girl. And as he's sitting in this, this milkshake uh, cafe bar, he sits there. And all of a sudden, I'm like, Riley, you've got it spot on. Here she comes. She's coming around the corner. And surely enough, you see her eyebrows. You see the eyebrows. And you go, that is her. Q, get up, chase her. He gets outside. He runs up to her. And there is just this beautiful face-to-face moment. And during this face-to-face moment, I've got my glass of milk in my hand and I'm ready. There's this beautiful face-to-face moment because I know what's coming next. 
except I have never experienced more disappointment in my life. I'll tell you right now, I have lost soccer grand finals before. I've got bad haircuts. I've got grades that I wasn't happy with. I watched The Bachelorette last year and I saw Richie get kicked off in third place. In fact, I watched The Bachelor this year and saw Richie choose the wrong girl in the final. I've seen Frozen five times, and if you're a parent, you might be able to resonate with this. I want Hans to be the good guy every time, but he never ends up being the good guy. I have never faced more disappointment in this film because my man Q walks up to Eyebrow's girl, and there's this beautiful close-up as he says the three magical words. I love you. And every part of me is like, mate, that is the right answer. That is the right response. You're going to nail it. And we all know how it's going to end. He's going to get the girl and he's going to take her back to prom. And her and her eyebrows and the dress and the rest of it, it will all work out great. Except the camera goes to a close-up of this Margot, of this girl's face. And you just see her kind of look at him in the eye and just go, "Mm, no, I'm no, no, I don't, no, actually, no, I don't feel the same way at all. I actually don't feel the same way about you. I don't love you. I'm sorry, Q. And I was so disappointed by this stage that I, was, I didn't even actually finish watching the end of the movie because I was completely cut because my, my heart just felt like it was ripped out for the sake of Q because this ultimate disappointment, this expectation I had in my head had been completely cut. It had been thrown into shambles. I have beef with John Green because he has ruined this plot line for me because I just expected there to be this happy ending at the end. And it wasn't what I was expecting. And the satisfaction that I was longing for, I simply didn't get in the resolution of this film. But ultimately, I can almost bring it back onto myself and say, well, what else did I expect? What else should I have expected? And I don't know if you have this problem at home, but quite often, I actually live, sorry, I live in a house of three girls. I've got one sister who can pretty much live live off uh, those two-minute chicken noodles. I've got another one that's rarely at home. She'll probably just eat toast, and my mum doesn't really eat that much. So whenever I go to the fridge, I have this lack of man food at home. And I will go to the fridge, and I'll open the fridge, expecting there to be something that can satisfy my needs, expecting there to be something that can quench my thirst or at least feed me to some extent. But I will open the fridge, I will look inside of it, and when I realise nothing's there, I'll shut the door. I'll shut the door and I'll walk back three minutes later to do exactly the same thing, expecting something to be there that can quench my thirst, that can feed me, but once again, nothing is there. And I can do this unconsciously for, for the whole day, really. And I know how some people say you spend the average of like four years sitting on the toilet or something like that. I think I spend six years on average just looking in the face of my fridge, looking for food to feed me, even though I know what is in the fridge simply won't live up to what I expect. And just as we have expectations of, of what might be in the fridge, just as we have expectations of endings of movies or when we buy new things, when we step into a new school, into uni, into a new career, we have these expectations. And maybe we also have these greater expectations of the world. And whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, you have to admit that not everything in this world is going right. Not everything in this world is going right. So we're going to be unpacking this idea tonight throughout the series that to answer what is actually wrong with the world, we first have to question what we expect from it. To answer what is wrong with the world, you first have to question what we expect from it. And if it's not our expectations that are wrong, then what is? Because we all seem to have these seemingly big 
uh, questions in life, but how we go about finding these answers. And this is what we've been looking at, uh, we will continue to look at over the series, this ongoing conversation. Because it's one thing to find answers in a book. Christian or not, it's one thing to find answers in a book. But ultimately, these unexpected answers that we find, or the answers that, that we experience, are actually things that we encounter firsthand. So throughout this series, we're going to actually be unpacking this book uh, of John. And looking at these unexpected answers, in, what not, in not only what we encounter, but also what this guy or this figure, historical figure, whatever you call, what this guy called Jesus, and how he actually encountered people. We're going to unpack these answers as to what is wrong with the world through two conversations. These two conversations that Jesus had with one, an insider of the church, and another, a social outcast of society. I want you to know that as we unpack this, this book of John, these conversations don't only just talk about the state of the world at the time, but it's also very relevant to the state of the world today and our role in what we play. Because ultimately, if these two people, this insider and this outcast, have something in common, then we all have something in common. So we're going to start today. We're going to jump into this outcast. And this outcast, I'll give you a little bit of a setting as we jump into the story. It might feel a little bit like play school here, but I'll kind of hope to jazz it up for you. Because Jesus and his disciples were actually on their way to this place called Galilee. And to get to Galilee, they had to travel through this area called Samaria. And in Samaria, there was this small town called Sychar. Now, Sychar, translated into Hebrew, actually means town of drunkards. Now, I don't know if you could imagine running for mayor of the town of drunkards. But Jesus wasn't stopping in this Hilton. He wasn't stopping in the Chevron or the mansion. He was stopping in the town of Sychar with his disciples. And we're going to pick up uh, this conversation from the point in which Jesus' disciples decide to go get a cheeky feed in the town of Sychar. They decide to go get their Subway or their Nando's, whatever. And Jesus actually heads over to the well in Sychar. He heads over to the well in the afternoon, but he has no jar in which to get water from the well. Keep in mind that he stopped because he was tired from travel. And this is where our outcast comes into play. And if you follow along, if you'd like to, in John 4, verse 7 and 9, this is where we're going to pick up the story. It says, A Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? The woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Now, in the shoes of the Samaritan woman, the Samaritan woman actually had every right to question why Jesus wanted a drink for her. Because in the first place, for a Jewish man to even talk to a woman was a, was a big deal. But for a Jewish man to talk to a Samaritan woman, even bigger. You see, the Jews and the Samaritan almost had this state of origin-like play, Maroons, New South Wales Blues going off against each other. The Samaritans in themselves uh, were actually this tribal, this uh, racial group that was actually created from the form of Jews intermarrying with these people called the Canaanites. And they were seen as racially inferior to the Jews. So for a Jewish man to talk to a Samaritan, but for a Jewish man to talk to a Samaritan woman, Jesus was reaching across to connect with this woman from the start. And she had every right to start questioning why he wanted this drink of water. So Jesus answers her. He said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water 
will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Before we unpack this idea of this water and what Jesus was talking about here, I just want you to know that that for Jesus to actually have this connection with this woman, he wasn't just breaking down ethnic barriers in any ways. It wasn't just a gender barrier that he had to break through. He actually had to break through this socio-cultural barrier to reach this woman, to actually communicate to this woman who was a Samaritan in Sychar. Because in fact, the well in Sychar was very much a social hub. In fact, for women, it was a bit of a glory of genes. You see, women would so often go to the well in the middle of the day in which in the cultural context in which this uh, story took place, women would go to the well in the middle of the day to collect their water. And this would be a place where they can chill out, they can, they can talk, they can, I don't know, do what girls do. I actually don't know what girls do, but I assume whatever happened at this well, things were going down. Except our woman from uh, our Samaritan woman, our woman at the well, she comes in the afternoon. She doesn't just come in the afternoon to escape the glares of the sun, but she actually comes in the afternoon to escape the glares of her neighbours. Because you see, our woman at the well was a, not only a Samaritan woman who came in the afternoon, but she was actually a social outcast of Sychar, a social outcast of the town of drunkards. Can you imagine what that was like? And here's Jesus coming to her, merely saying, I have something for you, as basic and necessary to you as water is physically. I have something that will affect you on the inside, as basic as water is to you physically. As we carry on, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw more water. So Jesus turns to her. He says something quite odd. He says, Go call your husband and come back. Go call your husband and come back. And the woman replies, I have no husband. In fact, Jesus says to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've actually had five husbands. And the man you're now with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. I can see you are right indeed. You can see for our women at the well, she's most likely the subject of gossip in the town. And if not, even going to the well in the afternoon, it shows that this potentially could have been one of the lowest points in her life. In fact, it could have potentially been one of the loneliest points in her life. She could have been more lonely than Amanda Seyfried in that movie, Dear John. I don't know if you've seen it, but she was lonely. And ultimately, Jesus doesn't ask her to go get her husband for the sake of humiliating her. If he wanted to do that, he never would have reached across all those barriers in the first place. But he does it with a different intent. So what he wants to say is, if you can understand about the nature of this living water, this nature of this living water that can act inside of you, you need to understand how you've been seeking it from men. That you don't really know, and you don't really believe you're thirsty as long as you think you have something good that is filling you up from the outside. That you don't know what this thirst is, you don't know how oblivious you are to what you are actually feeding yourself with until you realize that you've actually been seeking this security and this sense of meaning from these men. Whatever that thing is, Jesus is saying, whether it's relationships for us, whether it's our career, 
whether it's keeping our head over our finances and our, and our money, whether it's working our way up the ladder at work. Jesus is saying, whatever that will do for us, it is something that is acting outside of you. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, we're, we're going to jump in and we're going to look at this other figure, this, this guy that is actually an insider to the church. And this man, you should know, he is indeed a, a righteous figure. His name is Nicodemus, and he was a Pharisee. And Pharisees, within the cultural context in which this story takes place, Pharisees knew the laws of God. They knew the set rules. They knew how this whole religion idea worked. So when Jesus meets with Nick, he says this. And to, to set the story out for you, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with Jesus replied to him, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God, God unless they are born again. Unless they are born again. Nicodemus asked with every intent, How can someone be born again when they are old? Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answers, Very truly. Very truly, Nick. Yes, indeed, they can't do that. That would not be ideal. I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. And we look at Nicodemus, and he actually greets Jesus with this, this humble greeting. He calls him by the name of Rabbi. That's his teacher, this very humble clearly admirable man comes to Jesus and calls him rabbi. And as he steps through, Nick clearly knows the rules and he's taught uh, the rules of Christianity. He, he knows about this God guy. He's a man of the Jewish high ruling council and Jesus walks up to him and delivers a double slice backhand to the face and tells him, Nick, you need to be born again. And if you were Nick, you'd probably be a little bit offended. Being a Pharisee, you'd probably be a little bit offended. And this is a completely opposite approach to how Jesus reached out to the woman at the well. Because even today, we can sit back and say, aren't these born-again Christians, aren't they the one that, that have all these troubles? Aren't they the one that are experiencing all these terrible situations? Aren't they the one that are so sick and are performing these immoral acts? Aren't they the one that need this, this seismic change? Isn't that the born-again Christians that we're looking at? What Jesus is actually saying to Nick is that, Nick, as long as you go about holding yourself to your moral goodness, your intellect and your efforts as a Pharisee, you are just as equal to the woman at the well. You are just as equal to the social outcast that sits at the well in Sychar. Because for as long as you hold yourself to these things, Nick, you expect nothing than being in a position of trusting yourself. I don't know about your situation, and if you are an unchurched person, I, I don't know what you've experienced from the church before. If the church has hurt you, if they've neglected you, if someone's ever ran up to you with a piece of paper telling you to repent. I don't know what uh, your situation is, but I could completely understand why stepping into a church and stepping into Christianity would, would be this never ever in your because as a follower of Jesus at the same time, I can tell you that it is easy to say 
that the ones that need to be born again are the people out in the streets dealing drugs. They're the ones with this alcohol addiction. They're the ones sleeping around. They have money problems. They're power hungry and they're manipulative. And you and I could probably identify or at least see people like this in our own lives. And even to a larger degree, you can probably see what these big time ballers that are repeating these things in life actually look like on a broader scale in our world. These people who are in control of these big decisions. We know throughout the course of history of not just Christianity and not just the church, but history itself, there are some big problems with this world. Even the people that we actually think have it all together, even the people that we think have it all, the millionaires, the actors, the celebrities, the athletes, that so often we see popping up in the media that they still have this void in their life that can never be fulfilled. They still step into this place of depression, this, this place of anxiety even though in our eyes they have all the resources they need, but they still have this void that they simply cannot fulfill. Ultimately, in light of that, I don't know what that prescription could look like, but ultimately a diagnosis comes before prescription. Because if we want to live in a world of truth, if we want to live in a world of, of purpose, we've got to start asking ourselves, what do we expect from the world? What do we expect from the world? To go ahead and answer what is wrong with the world, we first have to question what we expect from it. Because ultimately, you don't need to be a follower of Jesus to know that you, if you expect money from the world, if, if that's the answer that you're looking for, you're constantly looking at your bank account craving more. And in fact, if, if you uh, position yourself on your intellect, you'll constantly be in a position of being afraid of being caught out as a and if you look to power and if you look to authority to attain what you're looking for, you'll be in a place of fear of never achieving what you set out to do. And if you put yourself in a position of selling yourself short on short-term relationships, there will always be a sense of belonging that you simply can't step into. Because things like isolation and rejection will simply overpower it. See, these are, these are big cause because these things aren't as such sinful as they are unconscious. They aren't as such sinful as they are unconscious because we unconsciously set ourselves expectations. We set ourselves, set ourselves expectations of what we want from the world because it is so easy for us to unconsciously open our fridge and expect there to be something that we can go to. Even though that we don't know whether or not the answer is there, it's so easy for us to turn to our fridge door and expect to get some sort of satisfaction from it. And that is why it is so easy for us to continue opening the door because we unconsciously put ourselves in this default setting where we constantly get the same answer. We do this thing at Beyond. It's called Four Monday because we believe what's the point in coming to church on Sunday? It's not going to change you. It's not going to make you better for Monday. So this week, I want to pitch it out to you. When you open your fridge door this week, just think for a second. Just take some time to actually hardball hustle with what you are to the world. It's a hardball hustle with what you are to the world. And I know in some ways that sounds big and scary. It was more so I was just going for the alliteration on the triplet of hardball hustle, which I thought sounded cool. But to actually hardball hustle with something. It's a hardball hustle and take this seriously for a second of identifying where you are tapping into. Where you are tapping into, not just for satisfaction, not just for security. Where you are tapping into for real meaning into your life. 
What does that look like to you? How can you identify that? Because ultimately, if you can do that, I want to challenge you to reflect on where you expect it to lead you. Where do you expect what you're tapping into for this satisfaction, for this security? Where do you expect it to lead you? If it is giving you meaning, where do you expect it to lead you? What does this destination look like? And ultimately, if you are a, a church person, if you're someone that's even skeptical about this, this faith idea, I just really want to aim in just on you just for a second. Because I'm going to pitch this to you. If your answer in some way is your faith, or it is God, I want to challenge you to hardball hustle with what you actually are to God. To hardball hustle with what you are to God and how does He lead you? How does He give you an ability to influence others and where will He lead you? Because ultimately, and I know Chris was, was talking about it last week if you were here for part one, but you should only be a follower of Jesus if what you believe He says is indeed true. And it's so interesting to know that Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well continues and actually ends on something quite interesting. It ends on a big call in a way. Because the woman at the well actually asks Jesus one more question. She delivers it like this. She says, Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews, talking to Jesus, you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus replies to her and says, Woman, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You see, God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Jesus is actually saying, if you want to be a part of this relationship with me, this is something you want to see where it can lead you. You don't need to just look at the mountain as a place to worship. You don't need to just look to Jerusalem as a place to worship. You don't need to just come to church on a Sunday to worship. You don't need to be in this place simply to connect in and be a part of this relationship. Because ultimately, you can connect with God throughout your week. His spirit and in truth. See, worship is something for us where everyone actually has a choice in what they worship. Whether we're worshipping something that simply satisfies us, it's far different from something that can actually sustain you. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you, you might already know that. But it's so satisfying to know, so incredible to know that, as a follower of Jesus, that Jesus actually had this discussion with the woman at the well purely out of the fact that he was thirsty, that he tired. If you're a follower of Jesus, you might already know but that is not the first time that Jesus said that he actually thirsted. So ultimately, if you look back to when Jesus was actually on the cross, he said, I am thirsty. He had to suffer this incredible physical sense of thirst for the sake of having a relationship with you. So if you're going to hardball hustle with what you are to God, do you not owe him a life where you can value yourself enough to step into a relationship with him that will sustain you and give you the ability to sustain others. Do you not owe him a life, more than a life of, of moral decency or a life which you led with satisfaction? How can you hardball hustle with what you are to the world and what you are to God? Where will it lead you? The follower of Jesus or not, it's, it's, 
simply too short. Life is simply too short and you are simply too valuable to live a life of simply being satisfied. My challenge to you is to think, where are you going to get this meaning and purpose? Where are you going to get this security and satisfaction? And are you putting enough value on yourself? Ultimately, what could this life, stepping into a relationship with Jesus, actually look like? Because it is incredibly exciting to know, as a follower of Jesus, that you can simply impact the people around you by stepping into a relationship with them. But by simply stepping into a connection and showing them what the love of God could potentially look like, you could potentially be bringing them into a relationship with Him. What does it look like for you to hardball hustle with not only what you are to the world, hardball hustle with what you are to God. We're going to wrap up in a time of prayer now and as we do that I'd love to invite the band back on stage. If you'd like to close your eyes or or do whatever uh, you do. Lord we just we just thank you Lord that we can come here on Sundays and that that there are connections that, that can be made. That ultimately the community that we are a part of in a physical sense does appear in our Sunday services. God, how incredibly exciting it is to know that we can actually step out of this place and we can be your hands and feet. We can actually step into relationship with other people simply by showing them what your love looks like. And Lord, I just pray that if there is anyone tonight that, that can identify what that, that need is, Lord, where they're going to tap into the sense of satisfaction. God, there is actually comfort in knowing that their life is too valuable to simply settle for being content. Lord, it is so easy to turn to things where we can feel secure. Lord, whether that is relationships, whether that is actually juggling up our finances, Lord, there can be such comfort in finding things that give us short bursts of content. Lord, I just pray that as we travel throughout this week, Lord, as we identify what it would look like to actually step into a purposeful and meaningful life, that God, to follow Jesus, we can actually connect in with you and realize what it looks like to have you at the core. Lord, there is big problems in this world. There are people dealing with these problems and they're in a position where they too are looking for these short bursts of satisfaction. Lord, I pray that we can just be this small connection in making this world a better place. God, in times where we are feeling discomfort, where we are feeling rejection, where we are feeling isolation, that we simply don't just go back to the fridge, Lord, to open the door again and expect the same answer and see the same answer. That, Lord, we can just break uh, this order of unconscious thinking and we can consciously turn to you, knowing that you put yourself in a position in which you thirst. You put yourself in a position where you suffered pain so that we could have a relationship with you. And we just pray over this week. And we pray that we can actively step into it knowing that we are of value. We can actively step into it knowing that life with you is something that will not only satisfy us, but something that will sustain who we are. Amen.